This episode is sponsored by our new class, Exploring Grief, Trauma, and Rejection with the Enneagram. This is an Enneagram group for foster and adoptive moms. Melissa and I have both found the Enneagram to be helpful in understanding ourselves and the people we love. In 2020, we decided to become certified Enneagram coaches so we could better serve the foster and adoption community. While adoption can be beautifully redemptive, it does start with loss. A birth family loses a child, a child loses a family, and for some families, adoption comes after a long journey of infertility and possibly pregnancy loss. Sometimes parents find it difficult if their child seems to be rejecting them. This is another loss, not to mention feeling like we lose what we dreamt our families might have been. The Enneagram is a powerful tool that helps us not just understand how we experience loss and rejection, but gives us simple practices to become healthier versions of ourselves despite hardship. So join us during the month of February to do some deep reflection and healing. This group is open to adoptive and foster moms. You must be able to join us live at all four sessions. There are two time slots and space is limited. To find out more or to sign up, go to theadoptionconnection.com slash Enneagram. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Welcome to episode 112 of the Adoption Connection podcast. As you know, at the Adoption Connection, we place a lot of value on hearing from all sides of the triad, and we together, Melissa and I, represent all three parts of the adoption triad all by ourselves, so we think this is very, very important. And one voice that we don't hear from very often is from the birth parent perspective. So we're really happy today to be bringing you an interview with a birth mom. So Hope Baker placed her newborn son for adoption in 2013 and struggled with depression, addiction, and overcoming the stigma that she felt as a birth mother. She wrote a book about her story. It's called Finding Hope, A Birth Mother's Journey into the Light. I really think you'll enjoy this open and vulnerable conversation with Hope Baker. Hi, Hope. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we had this scheduled a couple months ago and then pandemic. So I'm just glad we were able to reconnect. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that with the pandemic, schedules are so unpredictable. So I'm glad that even though we missed our first one, we can get on. Yeah. I mean, I think you were literally in the air last time we were supposed to record. I I was. So, yeah, I had to come back to America very abruptly when, you know, travel advisories were launched. So yeah, that was a very, Hey, I found out on a Thursday night, I got to get on a plane on Friday and I haven't been back since. So (laughs) yeah, so many big changes. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning of your story. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of who you were as a teenager? Like even before you knew you were pregnant, just, you know, what was your life like kind of coming into that season? Great question. So all of that is actually coming to surface right now because I am at my parents' house right now in a town that I grew up in for quite some time. So it's really, (laughs) it's a really timely question because so many memories are coming back. But I would say, honestly, I was a wild child, a wild child in a sense. I just was like a free bird type person. Like I made my own rules. <laughs> my parents would probably agree with that. And, and it's so funny because now I look back and I'm like, gosh, I can't believe that I, you know, 
did some of those things or, and my parents, I, I apologize to them all the time because I was a tough <laughs> kid. I mean, I, I do. I'm like, I'm so sorry, like for talking back. I'm so sorry. Like, I just see how good of a mom and dad you were. And I am so sorry. And now they tell me, oh my gosh, like that's normal. Like that's, you know, kids talk back at their parents. Like kids rebel against their parents, but it's so funny because like the stage of life I'm in now, I'm just constantly like, I'm so sorry. And they're like, you weren't that bad. <laughs> Do they ever but tell I, you like, we hope you get a kid just like you? <laughs> no. So it's so funny. Cause I said that the other day I was in the car with my mom and we were driving um, to get out of the house, just driving around the town they live in. And I was like, don't worry. Like I'm going to get payback someday. Um, I'm sure when I have another child, they'll, they'll be just like me. And my mom was like, Oh, that'll be good. Like in a good way, not in like a ha ha yeah. way. So <laughs> that's I, what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. So I felt really good about that, but I just, my parents always tell this funny joke that as a kid, like when I was really young, I looked like the doll that you left outside and got, you know, in the rain muddy. Cause I was always like digging in dirt, following my older brother around, like just always dirty, these bright blonde curls, like <laughs> that were ratted up, you know, just running around and making my own, my own rules and my own stories. What would you say to parents who might be parenting kids who kind of feel like you were, like they're kind of making their own rules or kind of always getting into a little bit of trouble, kind of, you know, they're not just the rule followers. My biggest thing that I think that I struggled with as a kid is I, I didn't always feel like I belonged, right? I was just so different and I, I always felt like I was breaking rules that were put in front of me. So when I think about how, you know, I want to raise my children, it's really to be more open. Like I, I had great, I have, you know, great parents and they always, you know, I never wanted for anything. They were able, they worked really hard to provide me with a good life. But I always, sometimes I just felt like I didn't belong. Like nobody understood me. And I think I wish that I would have had a parent who asked more questions, right? Who really wanted to understand maybe why I was breaking the rules rather than just, you know, scold me for doing something wrong, but really figure out wh why when I was a teenager, why was I getting in trouble? Why was I really going cro crossing boundaries to a high degree? Because I did. I, I really did. And, you know, I look back now and I'm like, I was just a hurting person. I needed, you know, part of it was maybe for attention. Part of it was just because I didn't, you know, I, I was rebelling. Like try to understand their thinking as kids, we don't know how to share our emotions. Like one of my, um, somebody, you know, in my life, she has a daughter who has severe anxiety at a pretty young age. And it's like when, when she's having these moments, I, I just want to be able to jump through the screen when we're FaceTiming and say, why are you feeling this way? Like walk me through, you know, what's going on inside your head rather than, you know, not trying to get to the bottom of it and to the root of it. I think that's the biggest thing is figuring out the why in a compassionate way. Yeah, it's so hard. We talk a lot about that here on the Adoption Connection, really understanding exactly like you're saying, why our kids do what they do. And, and our kids come from this place of kind of complex trauma, you know, relationships that have started and ended and, and possibly neglect and abuse. And so there's really good answers to those questions, but sometimes the behavior feels so personal. So, you know, I like your encouragement to us to just you know, ask the questions with compassion because there's definitely a way to ask them, <laughs> you know, out think, of frustration. Totally. And I, I think the biggest thing is to not take it personal, right? Like kids don't know. 
gosh, I'm 28 and I still don't even know how to process my emotions half of the time. So how can we expect a, you know, five, 10 year old, 15, even, you know, 18 year old, like we are still, I'm sure you as well and everybody listening, we're still trying to figure out how to process our emotions in healthy ways. So how could we expect a child to understand that, especially if they're going through tough seasons for the first time? So we really, and I think that takes, it's a whole paradigm shift as when I was growing up, it was like, and when my parents were growing up even more, it was, you kind of keep your problems to yourself, right? If you're crying and you're having a bad day or you're throwing a fit at the store, it's like you're, you're told to be quiet rather than, well, well, tell me what's wrong. Like what's going on in your head that's making you react this way? It's, it's not just because you want to make your parents miserable. There's a reason for it. Right. So I think that's been really good with the the generations that are coming and the conversations that are happening is people want to understand now rather than just silence, silence and punish their children. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. So so you were a kid who kind of colored outside the lines. You weren't a rule follower. Um, How you met your son's birth father. So I actually um, met him. I worked with him. So we were both, both servers at a restaurant. And, you know, there's really, there's nothing really more than that. We work together. That's how we met. Walk us through kind of those moments when you realized that you might be pregnant and then found out that you were, in, you were in fact expecting and kind of what were some of those emotions? What were you, what was your experience? Ooh, yeah, that takes me back. Um, and honestly, I have flashbacks of those moments all the time. Like I, I would probably say once or twice a week, I flash back to that moment in the clinic. Um, I actually got really sick my junior year of college towards the end of the year. It was right before finals. And, you know, it, it went on for a couple of weeks to the point where I ended up driving back. I took the two hour drive to go from the Twin Cities in Minnesota, so St. Paul, to Alexandria, where my parents were living at the time. Um, and I came home and my mom was like, your skin is gray. And that drive usually takes two hours. And I had to stop and, and, and rest a little bit because I didn't have like the strength to drive through, uh, which, you know, I used to cruise <laughs> down the road on that drive um, and get there quicker than you probably should. So I went into the clinic and I had not thought I would could be pregnant from things that had happened in the past. And, and interesting enough, right in the beginning of my pregnancy, I had gone into the doctor twice and said something's wrong with my body, but my mother had just been diagnosed with breast cancer shortly before that. In fact, the, the morning after I had gotten pregnant, I my mom sat me down and told me that she had breast cancer. So when I went into the doctor, I said, my body feels funny, something like my, my boobs feel funny, something's not right. They referred me to psych and said that this this is very common due to like the trauma of my mom and all of these things. So I actually, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't think that it was pregnancy. So when I eventually got so sick, as I was mentioning, I went to the clinic and they did an x-ray on me. I did a a urine test and an x-ray and, and you know, this is a lot of information, but my urine was very, very thick, which led them to to believe maybe it could be a bladder, kidney infection and whatnot. But they did an x-ray on me before they tested the urine. And the x-ray technician who was leaving for the night, because this was in the evening, saw what he said. Um, he saw a skeleton. I'm putting quotations around skeleton because it's still just a traumatizing thing. That's how it was relayed to me that he was walking out of the room and he saw a skeleton in the x-ray. 
So that is how I found out that I was 20 weeks pregnant, was sitting on a clinic, um, sitting at a clinic in a room with a nurse by myself um, and being told that there was a skeleton inside me, meaning I was pregnant. A little traumatic. Yeah, um, not what you're expecting, right? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I remember just saying, well, what are my options? You know, I'm, I'm a woman of freedom of choice. And I just remember sitting there saying, what are my options? I want my mom. My mom wasn't with me. Where's my mom? Like, you know, and of course she came, uh, but it was just a traumatic moment. If you could see me right now, I'm like, uh, like my body, my, my shoulders went up. My, I'm just like in a ball right now. <laughs> like I just like hugged myself a little bit um, because it is traumatic to think about and to talk about and especially writing a book about it because this, that's one of the number one questions I get. <laughs> I can't imagine. Were you still with the dad at the time? No. I don't talk about it very often and I didn't even go into detail in my book, but it was just, um, that time never again, you know, it was a, a party situation where the the memories are fuzzy. So I, I don't, I don't even like to speak about it because I don't have all the details. Thanks for your vulnerability and, and just sharing your story. I know, um, that's hard and, and everyone listening just appreciates kind of this little window into your world that you're giving us. When was the first time that you thought adoption, making an adoption plan would be a good option for you? So I actually had gone to, you know, when I was in the clinic, I was asking my options, asking my options. And the the nurses had told me that there was a woman in the clinic who was looking to adopt a child. And she was willing to talk to me. And that's really the first time adoption was brought into the conversation now, of course, me finding out I was pregnant 20 minutes before and then a woman wanting to knock on the door and meet me um, to take my child was it. And, and that way it felt like taking my child. I'm like, this is this is too much. It's too overwhelming. So that was the first time adoption came up. Um, I actually had gone to an abortion clinic to get an abortion. And because the dates I was so far along, I couldn't do it in Minnesota. So my sister, who, interesting enough, was trying to conceive a child, trying to conceive her first child. And they were struggling a little bit. She dropped everything, came and picked me up, and drove me down to Kansas City. Now, once we got there, it was a whole nother story. Once again, I'm pro-choice, and that—that that is my belief. You know, I don't force it on anybody else. It's my belief. And sitting in that clinic, I couldn't do it. And in that moment, even though I am, I believe in that choice. I, for myself, couldn't make that choice. So we left that clinic, and obviously, I left still pregnant. And, um, you know, on that drive home, I just remember thinking like, what do I, what do I do from here? I remember calling my dad, calling one of my girlfriends who had just had a baby a couple months before, you know, my sister and I are talking about, well, what if my sister, you know, adopts a child? And then we were like, well, that would be weird because it'd be so close. Would I be the fun aunt? Would I, you know, what, what would I be? And so, you know, adoption kept coming up. And I, at one point I was going to keep my son. I said, Hey, I think I, you know, I think I can do this. I have five bucks in my bank account, but you know what? I'm a woman who is determined and I put my mind to something I can do it. And eventually decisions were made and conversations were had and I decided to make an adoption plan. Um, and then my Google search began. <laughs> How do you do adoption? <laughs> what would you say to moms or what did you wish you had known then at that stage of your story? That's always a tough question to answer because I genuinely think it depends on what day it is and what emotional state I'm in. If I'm, 
you know, because that answer varies, right? But I think the biggest takeaway that I had is to be educated, right? If you, if there are, if a mother wants to parent their child, we, we should do everything we can to make that happen, right? So I would say if a mother is, wants to parent their child, they, they should try to research and find if there's resources available to help them. If a mother wants to look for an adoption plan, they should do the same thing. Look for the resources, do their research. Because what I found is, and I actually didn't go through an agency. Um, I didn't, I didn't use any of that. I actually found my son's mother on Google. I found her adoption book, like just like an ad on Google. So I didn't use an agency or anything of the sort, but my biggest takeaway is do the research and know what the decision you're making. It's not a right now a decision. It's a forever decision. So if you decide that it's not the right time for you to parent, there are so many families looking for a child and that's wonderful, right? You're entitled to that choice, but do your research, figure out what your rights are, what kind of adoption you want. Um, I think that's important. And, and, and to me, um, because I have met so many birth mothers, since I put my book out, I have just met so many birth mothers message me and they talk to me about their adoption and what's going on since. And, and my biggest advice is for both sides is to get, to get things in writing. I know that that seems very callous and, oh, we should, you know, have the, the trust between it, but, but we, to protect both sides. I mean, I just think that the adoption plan should be sealed in writing. So you make sure that the birth mother and the adoptive parents are protected and have the rights that they need to be able to, you know, function throughout their life. I yeah, know birth we, mothers who have no rights and, and they didn't, they weren't educated. They didn't do the research. They didn't know that they could ask for visits or that they could ask for more when making their adoption plan. Yeah, that's hard. Um, yeah. And we say here a lot that clear is kind. So I know, you know, like contracts seem very formal, but it is helpful to have it all laid out to go over all the scenarios. It, it's helpful because it's a very emotional time, that whole adoption plan situation. And so just having things in writing can be helpful because sometimes our memories are shady, you know, when we just look back and over a time that is very emotional. So I think that's really wise. Absolutely. And, and I think it goes to both sides, right? Like I know that some, some birth mothers may not like me, for example, when I went into the adoption planning, I didn't think I would want a lot of contact. I thought that it would be way too hard for me. What I found for me personally is that it's way too hard to not have contact, right? Even though it's, you know, it's so painful to go there and know that I have to leave and, and, and that's it. Um, I found that since the, since placement, I have wanted more contact, but here's the other side of it is some adoptive parents at points because of their own reasonings, which are all valid, they want less contact. And that could be because they are struggling with, you know, identity as a parent or maybe the adoptive child is saying, I want my birth mother or, or something that's causing them to do a pullback. And the birth mothers have to be protected there um, to make sure that they still will have access to their child and adoptive parents as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so tricky. So much to balance. You had a unique situation where you stayed with your son's adoptive mom while you were pregnant. And you talk extensively about that in the book.
We're interrupting this interview to ask you to do us a favor. Really, it's not for us, but for adoptive and foster parents just like you. If you find our podcast helpful, pause this episode and revisit your podcast app where you can rate and review the show. Honestly, this isn't about making us feel good. This is about other parents finding confidence, hope, and friends who understand. Thanks so much for helping us get the word out. We really appreciate you. Now back to the conversation. You had a unique situation where you stayed with your son's adoptive mom while you were pregnant. And you talk extensively about that in the book. But do you want to just kind of give like the 30,000 foot view of, of kind of what that story was before we dive into some of the other stuff? This is one of the things when I say do your research, I have learned since that that's actually frowned upon with agencies for many reasons, right? Um, but we, we did it how we wanted to. Remember in the beginning, I said I'm a rule breaker. I, I broke the, I think I broke the rules in adoption too. When I found my son's mom, I instantly thought this is, you know, this is a woman who I hope to be someday. Um, and there was just an instant connection. And we, I hid my pregnancy, you know, the rest of the world did not know I was pregnant. My very, very tight knit friend group did. And my immediate family, my, my grandma didn't know uncles and aunts, they didn't know. So I wanted to go live somewhere else when I started to show. Um, and we just said, well, why, I can't even remember who said it, but it said, well, why don't you just, you know, why don't we live together? Why don't we get to know each other? This is a chance for her to go through pregnancy too. You know, I want her to be able to experience all the joys of pregnancy with me. Um, so we, I moved there and I lived there for the last two months of my pregnancy. We did prenatal yoga. We did, you know, drank green smoothies every day. We went on walks every day. We went shopping. Like, you know, we did all of these different things um, and we're able to get to know each other. We did the hospital tour together. So it was a really, um, I think, maybe abnormal situation in adoption, but it worked for us. Did that make it a lot harder uh, to kind of separate because you didn't keep that same level of openness once your son was born? It, we didn't. So, and, and that's interesting because it takes it back to what I said, right? I, in the beginning, thought I wouldn't want as much contact, whereas she thought she'd want way more. And we flip-flopped. Um, and, and, that, and that's evolving, right? I think that my son has you know, transitions are hard for him and there's, there's things that are hard for him to process. So visits have been, you know, limited at times and, and that has been hard. I mean, when, when we made our plan, I was always thought I would be a part of the family. So when I, you know, now get visits that are declined, be they be for, because my son has events or anything like that, it's, it's really gut wrenching. And I have just had to learn that it is not me right? It is not me. This is nothing personal to me. This could very well be and most likely is because there's a conflict or because it's not the right time. So th that has been hard because that's not, the, that's not the way we lived when we lived together. But I will say when I'm with her, it's like nothing's ever changed, right? And we've been friends and talking every day for this whole entire time. I mean, she's an active part of my life. Yeah, that's such a neat story. How old is your son now? He will be seven. Yeah, and I think as more time goes, like some people are like, oh, it gets easier. But I think, you know, it's seasons, right? Like there yeah. are some times where I am so confident in the decision I made. 
And then there's other times like right now where I'm looking to buy a house where I'm like, gosh, like I could be giving him such a wonderful life. But I have to put myself back in the shoes where I was seven years ago and say, hey, you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time. I was not a, you know, businesswoman making a very good income with, you know, with the ability to buy a home and do these things. I didn't have that then. So I just have to like snap myself out of it whenever I start to feel those thoughts. And, and those have creeped up because I've been looking at homes and I'm like, wow, you know, this could be his room. And I have to quickly say, Hope, you made the best decision that you could with the given information. Go forward. Don't look back. Go forward. I think it's important to for people to understand, though, right, that this is something that wasn't just a point in time, right, that the decision, the process the story, like it's just an ongoing journey with emotions and roller coasters and all types of things, you know, and it'll be a lifelong journey. And so I just appreciate, you know, I've already said like your honesty and your just willingness to take other people along for the ride, because I think it's through our stories that we are able to become more educated, learn, keep an open mind, have compassion for all people involved in the adoption story. And, you know, primarily the adoptee and birth mom and adoptive parents, but there's so many other people that are impacted by that, right? Like your, your sister, you know, has a son who you're not parenting and your parents have a grandson, right? There's just so many people in this like adoption constellation thing. And um, it's, it's beautifully messy, I suppose. That's the best way to say it. It's beautifully messy and beautifully chaotic. There are people who are affected that we may not even think about. I know people always, you know, uh, the adoptees, the adoptive parents and the birth mothers, those are what, those are the parties that are always talked about. But I, you know, I have learned that it's so much more than that. I mean, my mom still today struggles from it. My dad, my biological dad, I have a dad and a stepdad. And my dad, I mean, it broke our relationship for many years because he was angry, but he was also grieving. That was his first grandchild and he was grieving the loss of that. And and we, you don't always think about that. So you're right. It goes far beyond just the three parties that we're talking about now. And I think, you know, one of the best things that's been for me is finally speaking up and say, Hey, I need help. I need to talk. And in having those conversations, I found that my mom needs to talk too. my dad needs to talk too. you know, my, my little brother needs to talk too, and we need to be open to having those conversations. And I think, that also opens the door to healing. What would you want adoptive parents to know as a birth mom? My hope for adoptive parents is that when there's a holiday, be it Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, whatever you celebrate, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate, think of those birth parents, right? Think of that birth mother. If you're having an exciting moment with your child on Christmas or whatever you celebrate, it is so easy to just send a picture. Now, I know that some birth parents say we don't we don't want pictures sent to us or maybe they just they they can't for their emotional state and that's fine. But start a Google Drive. Right? Start a Google Drive that you can easily drop a picture on Christmas and when they're ready, if they ever are, that is there for them. And and for me, that is the I think I hate using this word, but that that's the least that we can all do for each other. Right. If they're on Mother's Day, I would hope that every adoptive parent who 
is in communication with the birth parents, would send a happy Mother's Day and birth Mother's Day on Saturday. I would hope that that's their first thought um, is to send a message, right? And I know that my son's mom every year always sends me a, you know, we're in this together, a very sweet message. And I just want adoptive parents to know that those things matter. It may take five seconds out of your day to, to send a picture you just snapped of your child to them or drop it in a Google sheet, but that picture will mean more to them than you can ever imagine. So that is one of my biggest tips for adoptive parents is send the picture. If, if that's not part of your, if that's not part of your agreement, put it in a Google drive and make sure they have access to it. I just, I know that there are times where I crave pictures and, and in the beginning I wouldn't ask, I would just wait for the pictures that she would send. But now I know that it's okay to ask. And there's days where I say, I need to hear his voice or I need, a, I need a picture. I need, can you just send me one you sent? And she actually started to do something really cool when my request came up is she, she does these photo books and once they fill up, they go out and she has them going to her, you know, her mom and dad, and she has them going to me and she actually set it up to go to my mom and my grandma which is just such a cool touch. And I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but sending a picture on holidays is, is a big way to um, help your birth parents out. And I think we forget sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about visitation and kind of direct or indirect contact, right? Where the, the child's more involved. And so I think even this idea of you can feel like as a birth mom, you're more involved by just kind of observing from afar by getting those picture updates. And it's not necessarily a visit or something that's going to be kind of add a lot of extra stress. Um, you know, like you said, it's hard to be in contact and have to say goodbye and, and all of that. And not that visits aren't important, but that this is another layer of contact that I think sometimes we forget about uh, as an option that we have. Of course. And, and the, you're right. It is forgotten about because I don't think people like if you're not a birth parent, you don't understand the magnitude of it. And I think that's part of the big one of the big things that we need to get better on is communicating. I was I was nervous to ask for more pictures. Many birth mothers beside me in this, you know, in this life are nervous to ask. And I think we have to get better. Birth parents need to get better about asking. Adoptive parents need to get better at, you know, asking what the birth parents need as well, or just sending the picture, right? Yeah. I think, right. I, I, I do think, I think it takes five seconds out of a, you know, an adoptive parent's time. Um, and, and that will light up the birth parents world, whether they're not ready to see it at the time and they want to be able to go to a place where they exist. Um, but, but that matters and those little things matter. And for those times and especially adoptions that you don't have visitations, you, they, we need that. Even if we're not telling you we need it, we need it. Yeah. Yeah. What, you know, a lot of adoptees will start asking questions and sometimes there's enough contact for families to have answers. And, and sometimes there's not, especially, you know, in closed adoptions or adoptions that kind of happened a while ago or even just international adoptions, you know, are, tend to be a lot less open. When, our kids are asking questions about their birth moms um, and, you know, questions like, or they're wondering maybe even not out loud as much, but, you know, am, am I wanted, uh, you know, 
a lot of the why questions. What do you hope that adoptive parents are communicating to their kids? My first thought is, I'm going to give you a little two-part. My first thought is when you're going through the adoption process, even if, it, if it's a closed adoption, um, any, any type of sort, right? Try to get as much information as you can, which I'm sure is already being done. But on top of that, try to collect pictures. I know that my son, he, he likes pictures. He likes to see. He wants picture books. I'm in process of making them right now. And that can help with that. Them being able to see their birth family on is a big thing and then being able to identify. But I think we always have to, you know, the second part to that is I think we always just have to make sure that they know that they were, they, this was all because everybody loved them so much. And I, and I hate for an adoptive parent to make it seem like the adoptive parent loved the child more and that's why they're with them. They, you know, and, and it's hard, it's tricky language because I also think every child reacts different but I think when we, whenever that's asked to an adoptive parent, we just have to remember that they are, this is a, a, something that they don't know how to process yet because they're children. They don't know how to process their emotions. So how do you say it being thoughtful to both sides? How do you say it being thoughtful to the child and letting them know that your birth mother and birth father loved you so much that they wanted the best, you know, they wanted the best for you. And or they weren't ready and, and it's but it's tough because do you say that and what if they have children now I mean I don't I don't know the exact answer because I don't think there is one I think the answer is to be compassionate and to make sure that the child is always aware that both sides did everything that they possibly could for that child to be happy whether the child is with them or not every decision they made was because they loved the child so much and this was this was the best outcome for the child, not for the birth mother, not for the adoptive parents, but this was the best for the child. Yeah, thanks for thanks for just uh, allowing there to be gray there and, and saying, you know, sometimes we just don't know all the answers. But I think, you know, your emphasis on compassion and intentionality, just even think through it. Like you said, it's going to going to be different for every family. Um, but, you know, that's really a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I remember a story that my son's mom told me about how when she started talking about his birth story, um, he was mad. He was so mad that he didn't come from her tummy. Like he just had this reaction where he was like, well, and, he, and he cried and he was so upset because he was like, well, why didn't I come from your tummy? I mean, how does one handle that conversation? That's a conversation that not every adoptive parent's going to have. First off, there's no guidebook to that conversation. Like there is no rule book and I think every child's different right like he may react one way to a certain answer another kid may act react a different way so I think you know knowing your child and knowing how to speak with them like some kids may want a straight-up answer right they don't want any gray they want a straight-up answer with compassion of course but some kids may you know want want a full story and some you know it's just different so I think just knowing your child and being compassionate always first. If, if you can tell, that's always my number one thing with children is even when they're driving you crazy, right? <laughs> like how can we still find ways to figure out ways to be empathetic and understanding that their minds don't necessarily know how to process things. And just because you tell a kid no does not mean they understand 
why that no is significant and why you're saying that no. Like we really have to be thoughtful um, when speaking with kids. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but my co-host Lisa and I, between the two of us, make up all three parts of the triad. So I'm an adoptee. She's a birth mom and we're both adoptive moms. And I often say when I'm sharing my story as an adoptee that 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 is true, that we all process our stories differently. And I echo a lot of what you say. You know, we, we try to follow our kids' leads because uh, I have two siblings who are also adopted and we all have different views on adoption and our stories. Uh, and so, you know, there are there are some kind of universals, but there are a lot of things that are really, really gray. Absolutely. And and I think just acknowledging that for any parent, adoptive parent or not, acknowledging that is the most important thing you can do. Tell us about the process of deciding to write a book about your story. From the moment that I met my son's mom and we decided to live together, we knew something was different. We knew that this was not normal. And we actually had talked about it when I was living with her and my mom, you know, my mom and I had talked about it and, and it was just kind of like, oh, we should write a book together. Like we should share our story because it's different and it matters. Like the world needs to hear these stories. Um, and of course, you know, as you know, I wrote it by myself. That didn't, that didn't materialize. I think, I think as the adoption went on, things changed as we talked about in the beginning, you know, things changed, emotions changed, um, openness to be, and contact more change, time change. Like you're raising a toddler, you know, you don't have time to write a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> being a full-time mom and raising a toddler, um, a full-time working mom, right? So I think at one point I just sat, I, I sat up and I said, I can't find the help that I need. I can't find the resources I need. I can't find a story like mine. I can't find these resources. And I know that if I'm feeling that way, many birth mothers are feeling that way. Many adoptive parents are trying to get into the head of birth mothers to better understand. Adoptees may be trying to understand their stories. And I just, I had a calling to help. And I remember contemplating back and forth, pacing in the apartment I was living in in London. I'm pacing back and forth on the deck. We had like a wraparound deck on the, that wrapped around our whole corner apartment. And I remember pacing on that deck thinking, should I do this? Should I do this? You know, how do I do this? What what's the impact going to be for me? What is it going to be like if my son reads this someday? Is he going to be proud? Is he going to be angry? What's it going to be like for his mom to read it someday? Is she going to be, you know, angry about my views of, you know, how things happen? Because remember, all of our perspectives are different. His story is going to be completely different from mine and or his mom's and his mom's story is going to be, we're all, they're all different, even though it's the same, you know, we went through it all together. It's all going to be different. And I remember thinking like, do I want to open myself up for ridicule? Because I, you know, for the first couple of years after my son was born, I hid that I was a birth mother. I mean, still what my immediate family knew, my grandparents didn't know, uncles and aunts, my extended friends didn't know. And I used to write an anonymous blog. And I remember the day that I came out on that blog, I was like, I'm a birth mother. Here's my story. Here's three years of blogs that I've written um, and, and there was mixed signals, right? I got people who were angry. I had people, family members who were angry. I didn't tell them. People who were angry, I made that choice. People telling me I was selfish. But then on the other side, I had people giving support. So when I was deciding to write the book, all of that came to the surface. Am I emotionally strong enough to handle if there's negative feedback? 
And I think I just decided that the, the, the message and the journey was more important than the possible emotional struggle with negativity. And I had decided that my story is important and it's valid and, it, and it's, it needs to be told. Birth mother voices need to be heard. Um, adoptees, you know, it can help them better understand their past because all stories are different, but I think a birth mother's, a birth mother's love and, you know, there, there's, there's cords that tie throughout. So that's really, you know, where I was coming from. And then I, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I just jumped. And I remember it's so funny because there's, you know, in the book, I don't, I don't sugar, I don't sugarcoat it. I don't hide anything. And that meant that there are stories out there that I have, you know, the world is reading, my boss could read them. And there's a couple in there where I talk about very, you know, raw moments of my life where I struggled with addiction and where I struggled with men and all of these different things. And I remember calling the editor the week before saying, um, you know, I know my book is finalized and my, you know, everything's done, but can I take a couple lines out? Like, are we too far in the process? And we're like a day away from printing, right? And I'm like, can I take a couple lines out? I'm, I'm feeling very anxious. I'm having like, you know, a mini panic attack thinking about people reading a couple of these stories. And of course I couldn't, otherwise it would have delayed everything. But I had just to decide that if I don't tell the whole story, then it's not the real story. Um, and I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I did. I think that the feedback from the book has been wonderful. There has been, you know, a couple trying times with family members who read it and who were upset about some of the content. But at the end of the day, um, I feel good about it. And I've had messages from birth mothers, adoptive parents, just saying, you know, how much it helped them. And wow, you know, they're not alone. Like some of these things we think about, like the depression and the addiction, a lot of the birth mothers I meet are recovering addicts from after placement or they're still in the thick of it. A lot of birth mothers, not that they were before placement, but after. And I think part of that problem is we are not communicating enough and birth mothers don't have a space to feel safe always. And the when when you talk about being a birth mother, sometimes it's it's pushed with shame and and, and negative feedback. So providing a safe space where birth mothers can speak up and say, hey, I'm not alone. Wow. Somebody went through this as well. Here's what I need to do. You know, I know that I have a support system in place. I think having that in place is really going to help birth mothers process their feelings and not feel so alone and worthless. And gosh, what it it feels like when you put your work out into the world, right? Like you're at the top of that roller coaster and you're about to, you know, take the deep dive and you're thinking, did I really want to do this? Is it too late to get off? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly what I felt. (laughs) Well, I appreciate uh, your story, your vulnerability. I think your book is a beautiful window into your experience and you were raw and you shared a lot. And I know that a lot of people will appreciate that. And like you said, it's already been helpful. We believe here for sure that story breaks down a lot of the shame that we feel, whatever part of the triad or the adoption constellation, if you will, you're in. 
Uh, and I, I think more people need to be speaking up because I think there's a lot more Me Too moments that we can share, you know, no matter what our situations are. And so, you know, just on behalf of the adoption community, uh, I, I appreciate you taking the plunge and being able to share with us for coming on today for all the things and, and continuing to just take it one day at a time. And thank you, Melissa, so much for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it. I think you hit it right in the nail, right on the head, right? The nail on the head that stories help people get through the hardest and darkest times of our life. So I'm happy to be a person that can help even just one person through something was worth it to write the book. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've helped more, way more than one person. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I really appreciate Hope sharing her story, and I'm so reminded, we talk about this with adoptees especially, that not every adoption story is the same. Adoptees experience adoption very differently, and that is also true for birth parents. So Hope's story is her unique story, and I appreciate knowing that she is putting her story out into the world, I think is a really good thing. Would you say it's like the forgotten part of the triad, the part of the triad we get to hear from the least? I don't know if it's the shame surrounding it. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> As a birth mom, I can say that uh, it, there is a lot of shame. There's a lot of stigma. Even now there's stigma. Or there are the opposite where birth moms are kind of like the heroes and that's weird too. And so it's a hard story to tell. And we're also dealing with decades of progressive change in adoption to more and more openness and different things. And so the birth mother role and how the birth mother is viewed is changing. And so it's, I think it's kind of a complicated place to be. Yeah. Well, if you would like to hear more about Hope's story, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, she did write a book called Finding Hope. Full disclaimer it's a very raw, vulnerable book. And she uses some language that's probably more like PG-13. So I just want to throw that out there before anyone's blindsided by it. But I still think it's worth the read because I think every person's story is important. And the more diverse stories we can hear around the adoption triad will make us better parts of the triad, better foster adoptive parents and more compassionate people. So, but I just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone was concerned. So if you would like to connect with Hope, her website is hopeobaker.com. You can also find her on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Hope O Baker. There are also, um, we'll link to another, our other two birth mother stories, Lisa's and Adrian Collins in the show notes. You can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 112. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.